0: Our text for today comes from Revelation uh, chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. Then I saw another sign in heaven, a great and, marvel- great and marvel- marvelous seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple, clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chests with golden sashes. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven gold bowls filled uh, full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God, and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: All right. Well, good morning, everybody. See, I like it. I like it. Now, if you have been with us uh, throughout this summer as we were covering this series in the book of Revelation, you've probably... Notice that we've been covering, we've been talking about judgment passages fairly regularly, and that is because if you read the book of Revelation, you cannot deny the fact that judgment is a present reality in the book. And if you've been with us, you've probably also seen me kind of publicly wrestling with these passages. Uh, That's been intentional. One, because I hope to model for you. That as when we read scripture, we should wrestle with through and around it right this it's not always a linear process it 's something that we should wrestle with um and so that's what's kind of been going on in this series up until this point. A lot of our a lot of our messages have been in and around judgment. And today is kind of like our the ultimate judgment passage Sunday of the year as we look at the the seven bowls of judgment that we find basically from the beginning uh, at the end of chapter 14 of Revelation, but mostly in chapter 15, 16, 17. And then in 18 and 19, we still see some judgment type things happening, but it changes a little bit. So today, what we're covering is this whole idea of judgment that we, that we, uh, that we find at the end of the book of Revelation, specifically through the lens of these seven great bowl judgments that we find in, in the book of Revelation. So that's where we are and what we're covering today. Now, Uh, I hope today to clear up some misconceptions for us about the character of God. You see, many of us have a picture of God in our mind. Actually, all of us do. No one in this place doesn't have a picture or an image of God in our mind. And many of us have, as attached to the picture of God in our mind, the picture of God as a kind of heavenly punisher. I think we all have a little bit of that in our minds, who's gleefully rubbing his hands together in in anticipation of bringing the fury of a thousand suns down on our heads, right? Uh, If you ever have ever met Jesus, you know this is not what God is like, but yet it's hard for us to kind of let go of that picture, isn't it? but due in part to a lot of different influences. Some uh, of us have had experiences in this life, whether those were religious experiences or experiences with family that have kind of loaded us down in our minds with this picture of God. And, uh, and for those of us who have that picture of God as a kind of punisher, when we read Revelation, it reinforces this faulty picture of God for us at times. You know, there are spiritual movements, there are streams of Christianity that have overemphasized God's wrath. I don't know if you know this, but there have been. Actually, any time a Christian church gets overly religious and begins to elevate moralistic rules above things like God's love and His grace, you see a kind of subtle fear begin to creep into those movements, those communities, those churches. And very often the movements and churches that have become overly moralistic also begin to misuse the Bible's teaching on God's judgment or on his wrath in order to keep people in line. You ever notice this? The movements that teach the most strongly about the wrath of God seem to also be the most religious and pharisaical. At least that's in my experience. And what movements uh, like this have done is that they've bred a lot of fear. They've produced a lot of fear. And the fear can get down deep in our bones. It can. It can affect us. Uh, It's actually something I deal with on a fairly regular basis. I have this fear of God, this faulty picture of God in my own brain sometimes. And here's how it usually manifests itself. And we'll see if maybe it's present with you as well when I tell you this, what sometimes goes through my mind. When, when some, sometimes when something in my life does not go according to plan, I have this little evil thought that goes through my mind that goes something like this. Is God doing this to me because of something I did wrong? Anybody else ever have that thought when something doesn't go quite right? Is this failure or disappointment that I'm experiencing really God just taking punitive action against me for some sin that I committed, right? This is, a, this is a thought that we have in our minds. If you grew up in and around church, you probably have had this thought go across your mind from one time or another. I'm here to tell you today that this is not a godly thought. And it's not a biblically accurate thought either. Now, sometimes the failures and disappointments in our lives are our faults, right? We are sinful, and sometimes that sinfulness has its ramifications. If I rob a bank or I get addicted to drugs, it is not necessarily God's fault that I end up in prison, right? That's just my own sin coming home to roost in some ways. On a more practical level, if I am a selfish friend and I expect everybody to do all kinds of stuff for me, but I'm not willing to do all kinds of stuff for, uh, uh, I'm not willing to serve and love other people, then surprise, surprise, at the end of the day, I might not have very many friends. That's not God punishing me. That's just the natural consequences of who I am. These are natural consequences, and that happens in life. But here's the point. Here's the point. I have this kind of fundamental conviction And that fundamental conviction is that judgment passages in the Bible are not meant to be used fearfully as a tool to coerce holiness. Did I spell coerce right? Ashley corrected it. That's good. It's spelled wrong here. Uh, Holiness, as far as I have seen in the Bible, is supposed to be the natural and healthy response to the love of God, right? Right? It is God's grace, His kindness, Paul tells us in Romans 2, that leads us to repentance. But that does not square with many of our experiences of religion, and that's where the tension exists, right? For many of us, religion has put fear in our hearts, fear of punishment, but also a kind of deep-down fear that I don't know if we're always able to put words to, and, but, and that fear is that maybe, just maybe... God is not good, at least not good in the way I understand goodness. that God is in fact someone or some something that I need to be quite scared of, that I should do all of the quote unquote right things because there is a God in heaven that uh that really wants really has it out for me, right? instead of doing the right things because there is a God in heaven who loves me and wants to be near me and wants me to flourish, right? And if you have that fear in your heart, if it's somewhere at the back of your mind, and you have the sneaking suspicion that God is in fact not good, when you read chapters 15 through 20 of Revelation, it functions like a kind of confirmation bias, I think. Your greatest fears have just been realized, right? God's got a burning lake of sulfur, and he's got angels who are going to turn the world's water to blood, so watch out. Mind your P's and Q's. Just do whatever you can to avoid that guy, right? But that does not sound much like love to me. Does it sound like love to you? And it's not the way that the biblical authors talk about judgment when they speak about judgment. C.S. Lewis has this really interesting little article on the theme of God's judgment where he talks about how down through the centuries a lot of Christian art and literature intentionally uh, depicted God's judgment as, with, a kind of, with an element of terror to it. Any of you who have ever seen uh, a painting from the medieval uh, centuries understands this, Right. But then Lewis goes on to talk about how the depiction of the judgment of God that, uh, that Christians have had in art and literature down through the ages is so different from the ways that the Bible talks about judgment, specifically in the Psalms. Uh, when you read the Psalms, judgment is not spoken about as a kind of terror, but something to be anticipated with joy, which is interesting For instance, in Psalm 96, we read this, Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound in all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for He comes. He comes to judge the earth. What? He will judge the world in righteousness and the people in faithfulness. Not our uh, knee-jerk response to the idea of judgment, is it? And again, even more interestingly than that, in Psalm 34, the psalmist is actually asking God to judge him personally. We read this in Psalm 34, 24, "'Judge me, O my God, according to your righteousness.'" So how are we to make sense of this, right? The prayer book of the Bible teaches us to joyfully anticipate God's judgment, even that judgment when it comes to us personally. Meanwhile, I have never met anyone, unequivocally, I have really never met anyone who reads about judgment and revelation, specifically the all-encompassing bowls of judgment that we read about in basically 15 through 20, and responds like the Psalms with joyful expectation. So something is off here, right? Right? Something about the way that we have been taught about this book, something about the way that we, we have been encouraged or explained judgment through, the, through a biblical lens is a little off. And when we read this book, we need to make sure that when we are reading these, these judgment passages, we are reading them without all of the kind of religious, moralistic, do the right stuff so that God doesn't send a tornado to hit you kind of mindset, all right? And we also need to attempt to understand what it is that John was trying to communicate to his audience, to his original audience. Because, as I said, we need to read these passages. If we read these passages through the lens of bad religion that overemphasizes God's wrath as a way to get us to follow rules, we will end up drawing conclusions from these chapters that I do not believe John or the Holy Spirit intended us to draw. So, what I want to do today is just walk through this, these judgment passages. Basically, I'm going to give us uh, a little, we're going to start in chapter 15 and talk a little bit about 15, but then we'll talk in some broad strokes about what happens throughout the rest of the bowls of judgment in the book of Revelation. And my goal today is for us to be able to kind of crack the door a little and to begin to see that the day of the Lord that's spoken about in Revelation and the judgment of God is not something that we should be scared of, but is something that should produce joy in our hearts. Joy in our hearts. And if you're, and if you're sitting in, out there today and you're like, I don't think Nick's going to be able to pull that off. Well, we will see, right? We will see. Now, if you have your Bibles with you, you can open up to chapter 15. Chapter 15, in chapter 15, we are introduced to the, the bold judgments of the book of Revelation. These are the final judgments pronounced in the book of Revelation, and they are total. They are complete. Um, they are they bring to an end, functionally, God's uh, the passages of judgment in the book of Revelation. And in chapter 15 of the book of Revelation, we get a picture, a glimpse of... The throne room of God, the throne room of God at the beginning of chapter 15. And if you've been with us through this series, this picture of the throne room of God should sound familiar to you. In in the throne room of God, there is a sea of glass. We were first introduced to the same throne room with the same sea of glass in chapter 4 of the book of Revelation, only now the sea of glass is slightly different. Now the glass is mixed with fire, right? Which is ominous. And interestingly, we see standing around God's throne on the sea of glass, a people who, have, who we are told have been victorious over the beast and over his image and over the name, oh, excuse me, over the number of his name. This is what we're told. Now, quick question here. How do you think these people overcame the beast? Did they, did they vote him out of office? Right? Did, did they start a revolution? right? Did they go get some tea and throw it into the ocean? No. Revelation has already told us how these, uh, these victorious ones have been victorious. We know that these people are victorious because they remained faithful to the Lamb and to the Lamb's way of war, which does not look like the beast's way of war, does it? They stand victorious in the throne room of God because they overcame the beast by the word of their testimony, by the blood of the lamb, and because they did not love their lives unto death, we learn about in Revelation chapter 11. And this is an encouragement that John is giving the church here, telling persecuted Christians living under the thumb of empire that they do not need to bow down to Caesar. They do not need to participate in the idolatrous culture of Babylon. Even though it looks like they are losing, if they live by lamb power through the word of their testimony and through sacrificial love, they win. They win. And we know that they are victorious because of the song that they are singing. And I want to focus in on this song for a moment. The song is described in chapter 15 of Revelation as the song of Moses, the song of Moses. Now, the song of Moses is the song that the people of Israel first sing to God on the shores of the Red Sea after God has just brought them through and delivered them from Pharaoh. And coincidentally, we've been singing this song a little bit lately at church, and I'm into it. But John is telling his audience that even if they suffer death because of their faithfulness to Jesus— that he wants them to know that they still are victorious, that they are kind of like a new Exodus people that have come through the sea and stand on the other side victorious. But he de- the way he defines their victory is different than you would think. They are not victorious because they defeated their enemy. Here's why they're victorious in chapter 15, verse 4. They are victorious... Because for all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now I didn't cut that quite right, but uh, John is telling us that that these Christians who have suffered under the hand of empire, who are these kind of new Israelites, these ones who are uh, the they've they have experienced this kind of new exodus, are victorious. Because God uses their suffering to accomplish His purpose, to see all of the nations come and worship before God, to reveal—actually, through their suffering, John tells us, they—these ones who stand before the throne have revealed God's righteous acts to the world. But unlike the the Israelites in the Exodus, this group of God's people are not praising God because they've been physically delivered from their enemies. They are praising God because of the way that God has used their witness and their personal sacrifice. Most scholars argue that the ones standing around the throne in this passage are martyrs but that God has used their sacrifice to bring the nations to acknowledge and worship the true God, the true Lamb. This is why they're victorious. They're victorious because through their suffering, God has worked to bring about His kingdom purposes, to bring the nations in. It's powerful. This is the way the New Testament scholar Richard Bacham talks about this passage here in Revelation 15. He says, The martyrs celebrate the victory God has won through their death and vindication, not by praising Him for their own deliverance, but by celebrating its effects on the nations in bringing them to worship God. We now see that this redemption of a special people from all the peoples is not an end in itself, but has a further purpose to bring all the peoples to acknowledge and worship God. In the first stage of his works, the, the work, the lamb's bloody sacrifice redeemed a people for God. In the second stage, this people's participation in his sacrifice through martyrdom wins all the people for God. This is how God's universal kingdom comes. It was the early church father, Tertullian, who first summed this idea up very succinctly when he said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So put yourself in the, in the shoes of John's audience for a moment with me this morning. There's a storm of persecution looming on the horizon. You know that God has called you, that he has saved you, that he loves you, and you believe that Jesus is Lord and that Caesar is not. And you learn from this letter that even if you endure suffering, God will not let the suffer, that suffering go to waste. He will actually use it to accomplish His great rescue plan for the world. And for that reason, your suffering carries with it a kind of eternal purpose and significance. What a powerful encouragement to a, to a persecuted people Reve- the book of Revelation is, isn't it? But even though the... John explains to these ones who were persecuted what their suffering re- accomplishes, what it represents, there is still in the, hanging in the air in chapter 15 of the book of Revelation a kind of question. And it's a question that's been hanging in the air throughout all of the book of Revelation. What about the beast? What about Babylon? What is God going to do about this great enemy? What about the systems of evil, the principalities and powers that set themselves up as false gods to be worshipped in our world? What is God going to do about that? We know he's going to accomplish his purpose through the sacrifice of Jesus, first and foremost, and then through the sacrifice of his people next. But what is he going to do about these systems, structures, uh, and ultimately the devil himself that set themselves up against the rule of reign of God in the world? Is he just going to kind of let them go? right is he just going to kind of let them go or is he going to deal with this in some way is he going to rescue not just his people but his his creation itself from the grip of sin and death and decay is he going to do it and the answer to the book of in the book of revelation is yes yes he is god is a good creator who longs to see his creation renewed and restored. And in order to see that happen, he will be wrathful and he will judge. He will be wrathful and he will judge. Now, there is an analogy that I think is really helpful if we want to understand what it looks like uh, that kind of helps us understand the judgment passages in the book of Revelation. And that analogy comes from one of my favorite genres of movie and book, the Western. Anybody else a Western fan? I love the Wild West, the lawless West. I love all the movies. <laughs> I love the moral ambiguity of Westerns. Uh, I love the dialogue, the minimal dialogue. I love the long cinematic shots with no talking of rugged landscapes, and just give me a rugged landscape for 25 minutes and I'm fine. Uh, But in Westerns, there are are numerous types of stories that are told in Westerns, but there's one type of story in Westerns that gets told from time to time, and that is the story of the law coming to town. You familiar with this? Uh, The new sheriff or the judge who's coming to restore order to a lawless city that's in the outskirts of the West. And this is basically the story of Wyatt Earp and Tombstone, right? If you've ever seen Tombstone. If you want me to quote it later, I will. Skin that smoke wagon. Um, but never mind. You don't understand. Uh, but when the law, but when the lawman comes to town, he usually has a big showdown. Right at the end with the outlaws who've previously run the place. This is what usually happens, and usually justice is done in this little town. And uh, and the townspeople, what do they do? The townspeople come out and they think uh, this lawman for removing the blight, removing the terror, so that they could live free in their little uh, their little slice of New Mexico or wherever it might be. Now, I think this analogy is helpful for us as we look at these judgment passages. Uh, what we see in the Bible is a good God who created the earth and said of the earth after he created, this is good, right? And a God who is fully committed to to that good world, that world that he originally created good, he's fully committed to its redemption. This is why in Psalm 96 that we read earlier, the sea and the earth itself rejoice at the coming of God, right? This is why we read in uh, the book of Romans that uh, the earth itself anxiously anticipates the revelation of the sons of God because there is something about this God who is coming uh, this good God who created this earth good, that he is committed to see it liberated from its bondage, both people and the creation itself. God's, uh, God judges, yes, but his judgment is a liberating, healing, sigh of relief type judgment where things are finally put right. This is what God's judgment looks like. This is not punishment for punishment's sake. God does not do that. He is not punitive. He judges judges in order to bring about healing, to renew and restore the world he created good in the first place. And what I believe we see in chapters 15 through 20 of Revelation is basically the big showdown at the OK Corral of the universe, if you will. And, uh, And you see, God finally... In the story, stepping in, and God is going to execute His wrath. His wrath. Now, I know that the that word is hard for many of us to hear, uh, but I need you to see again that God's wrath is not punitive. It's not punitive. It's not uh, punishment for punishment's sake. He does not punish only to punish. Actually, in the Bible, God's wrath consists of only two things. There's only two aspects to God's wrath in the Bible. The first. Aspect of God's wrath is his withdrawal. It's so he allows human wickedness to work itself out and to reap its own destruction. All right. This is the first aspect of God's wrath. This is allowing the natural consequences of my behavior to come home to roost. Uh, And two, he steps in more directly to stop it when it gets out of hand. This is that's God's wrath. All right? That's what it is. That's all it consists of in the Bible. And the way God executes his wrath in Revelation is depicted or described in these seven bowls of judgment. Now, what I want to tell you from the outset this morning is that these images of total, uh, of total destruction of the world are not literal. They're not literal, all right? Remember, this is apocalyptic literature, and so John is using symbolic language to get his point across. The God of the Bible is a good creator who longs to rescue, renew, and restore his creation, not destroy it entirely. All right? But the language of judgment is described as total because it's a way of describing its completeness. God is going to, with, uh, to remove every barrier to his good world being his good world. And so it's descri- So the destruction is described in Revelation as being total, so that it talks about the completeness of what God is about to do. Does that make sense? Thank you, Carol. More of that. When we, so when we get to chapters 15 and 20, to the last battle, the great showdown um, of this book... Each successive section of the book that depicts the bowls of judgment depicts or gives us a picture of one area of God's creation that God is going to liberate. He's either going to, that where he's going to step in or he's going to allow the natural consequences of sinful behavior to come home to roost. And, that, and through those two means, he's going to deal with the dysfunction of his world. All right? So, uh, what I'm going to do now is just walk briefly through Uh, through a couple chapters and, and show, and just give you a basic breakdown of how this is depicted in the book of Revelation. So first, in chapter 16, we get the first four bowls of God's judgment, and in those first four bowls that we see in chapter 16, God rids his beautiful world of those who assisted in its destruction and decay. That's what we see in these first four bowls of judgment in chapter 16. So the first four bowls, we see nature rising up against humanity. That's the picture we get. The idea being that God will allow the natural elements, earth, sea, rivers, and sun, to pass judgment on human beings who have grievously abused their position as God's image bearers within creation. Humans were supposed to take responsibility for caring for God's world. That's what Genesis is all about, right? But because of our wickedness, John foresees a day when the earth itself revolts against sinful humanity. This is what he sees. Notice that these judgments, again, are total, but they are total because they symbolize that God will no longer take half measures in his effort to purify his creation of sin and evil. There is coming a day when when the very futility of the ground itself will be dealt with, will be put aside, all right? This is what we're talking about in, through the first four bowls of judgment. Now, uh, one thing that really brought this idea home to roost for me, uh, before this past Monday, right, when we saw, what was the name of the, the storm? The Dorado? Dorado. I See, I shouldn't have even asked because that doesn't make any sense when you say it to me. I can't hear it. Um, I'm going to call it the didgeridoo. Um, no. Uh, no. So, uh, if any of you watched the D- uh, Ken Burns Dust Bowl documentary on P- Iowa Public Television. It's really good. So one of the things that, uh, it's a four or five part series where Ken Burns documents the Dust Bowl that occurred uh, at the turn of the century, or in the 20s, uh, in, in the United States, uh, Kansas, all those places in the middle middle south of the United States. And one of the things that stood out to me that was fascinating was that the Dust Bowl, they say at the beginning of this documentary, was the largest man-made natural calamity in the history of the world. And what happened was human beings, uh, out of lust for more money and more, uh, more crops, basically, tilled up more crops than the land could sustain to the point where it could no longer retain moisture and keep, uh, and keep the land healthy. And so the heat and the winds and the lack of rain created a giant dust bowl that, that expanded to the point that eventually it hit Washington, D.C., and then because of that, because a big dust cloud hit Washington, D.C., the, the government started putting into plans plan some programs to buy back some land so that they could leave it fallow and put native grasses on it. But the point of it being, it was man's activity, right, sinful activity on the land, and in some sense the land came up and bit back, all right? I'm not saying that's exactly what's being depicted in the book of Revelation here, but I think it has some resonance with what John is getting at, all right? So that's chapter 16. In chapter 17 and 18, God judges the demonic imperial powers of injustice. This is what God is doing in chapter 17 and 18. For John's audience, they would have read those chapters of judgment in chapter 17 and 18, as God's promise to deal with the evil and death-dealing culture of the Roman Empire. This is, what they would have, this is how they would have understood it. But it is also a kind of universal promise, right, for us as well, uh, that the powers of this world will not be allowed to have their way with this world forever. They won't. But at the return of Christ, they will be stopped. And Christians are to long for that day when the powers of this world that oppress and kill and gas and bomb and and illegally imprison and do all of the things that the powers of this world do will be put to a stop. God will step in and he will say no more. And that's what's depicted in chapters 17 and 18 of the judgments in Revelation. Now, in chapters 19 and 20 which we'll be talking about more next week, we'll look specifically at these passages. God deals finally with the dark powers that lie behind, lie behind those systems themselves, basically the devil, and conclude with defeating even death and Hades themselves. This is not what we often, when we often read this, we think of God as kind of a rage-filled, right? But this is not a rage-filled explosion. This is a good God who has finally seen enough and steps in to stop the endless cycle of death and rot perpetrated by the powers of this world and by the devil. This is what we're seeing. This is a God who sees death as an enemy and through the work of Jesus on the cross has defeated it. But at his second coming will defeat death once and for all when God's people and the whole earth will be resurrected and changed and restored in the blink of an eye. This is the God that we serve. And this is why judgment is a good thing. It's a good thing. This is why the people who come through these judgments sing the song of Moses, right? They sing the song of victory and deliverance, the song of the judge who has finally arrived in town to establish his good and lasting order. There are no more half measures. There is no more simple pain management. God's goal, his purpose, is a restored and renewed world with restored and renewed people who love him, and he loves it all enough to step in. That's the story of the judgments in Revelation. Amen. Amen. Now, what does this mean for us this morning, okay? What does this mean for us? I think there's one primary takeaway, and that primary takeaway is that judgment is not about punishment. It is about restoration, all right? Judgment is not about punishment. It is not about re- rest- restoration. You know, humans are punitive. God is not punitive. We want to see the, pe- the person who did us wrong get what is coming to them, right? That's us. Andrew, if you could come up. We want uh, people to pay for what they have done, right? That's us. We are sinful. God is holy. God's justice is not about punishment. It is about restoration. And Jesus teaches us this on the Sermon on the Mount right? What does he say? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In short, be like God. The reason Jesus teaches us this is because this is what God is like. He's not teaching us this because God is different than the way he's teaching us to be, right? God loves his enemies. I'm just going to say it again. God loves his enemies. For God so loved the world, right? Too many Christians think God is running around hating the world with his finger on the trigger, right? Just like going, oh, please. Like God is not Dennis Hopper in speed. That's not who he is. God loves you and he loves the world and he sent Jesus to the world, the Bible tells us, while we were still his enemies because he wants to set us free. Because he wants to set us free. This is what God is like. And he feels the same way about the whole world. All right? Sin and death and everything that hurts and destroys his good world makes him quite angry. And he is working even now to renew and restore it through his people. But there is coming a day where he will step in and say, no more of this. No more of this. And we know that he will do this we, the Bible actually tells us the way that we know that he will do this. You want to know why, how we know that we know that we know that God is, there's coming a day when God will say we'll no more? It's because he raised Jesus from the dead. That's how we know. And through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have access to the new life and liberation that God is going to bring at the end in some mysterious way in the here and now. It's, the Bible talks about uh, part, the part, our participation with Christ in the midst of our current broken world as having a foretaste of the world that's coming towards us in Christ. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have access to the newness of life that is coming towards us in the person of Jesus. On the cross, Jesus waged war with sin, he waged war with sin and made a spectacle of it, so that we could be free. This is what Jesus did. This, the character of God in the Bible is no different than the character we see in Christ on the cross, right? It can't be. Otherwise, we're talking about two different gods, and if the book of Revelation leads us to believe that God is punitive, that God is out to get us, that God, that the judgment of God is something that needs, that, uh, that is kind of hanging over my head in order to coerce my behavior, we have missed the point. And this morning, what I'm praying for all of us is that, you know, I've been studying this stuff all week and I still have that small voice in my head that God's out to get me, right? It's still there. My prayer this morning is that we're here and we hear this message and we, and we open the scriptures and we read them together, that we would come more and more and more to the, <laughs> to the realization, to the epiphany, if you will, that this is not what God is like, that God is not punitive, that God, that God's judgment is good, and that God loves us and that he judges even us in, or- and in order to restore his good world and to restore us. This is what God is like. So would you stand with me this morning? As we go over this morning, I just want to pray for us. Because here's what I know. Here's what I know. Um, you have this same thing in your heart that I have in my heart. I think in, almost anybody who grew up in a religious environment does. It's one of the drawbacks of growing up in a religious environment, is we have some rules and moral Uh, moral kind of stuff. And sometimes people think that the easy way to get kids to do the right thing is to uh, scare them, right? It's just how it goes sometimes. Uh, But this is not why God wants us to behave. God wants us to behave because He wants us to be free, right? And so I'm just going to pray this morning that God would unlodge or dislodge some of our preconceptions about Him in our heads and in our hearts, and that we would come to see Him as a good God who, who uh, will judge the world, will stop in and say enough at some point, but that that judgment will be a good judgment that will be for our freedom. All right? Let's pray, shall we? Father, we love You. And we pray this morning, God, that You would renew our mental image of You, that we would know that you are a good Father who loves us, that you are not punitive, you do not punish us for punishment's sake, God, but rather you, ha- you came to us while we were yet sinners in the person of Jesus, and you died on the cross in order to take our sin, in order to make an example of the principalities and powers, in order that we might be free. And there is coming a day... When you will step in and say no more to the, to the pain, to the death, to the sin of this world, and you will renew and restore your good creation. and we will rejoice on that day. We will rejoice in that day knowing that all has all is right in your good world. And so God would you help us to remember this week that God looks like Jesus on the cross that, that would, and would that, Would that fill our hearts with love and spur us on to be like you because of your love for us? Would it be the grace and the kindness of God that transforms our hearts and draws us close to Jesus this week? And we pray it all in that name, the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. And we'll say it a third time. Amen. Amen. All right, well, thanks for being with us today. Hey, uh, one thing before you go. We are having an outdoor service on September 20th. Uh, We'll be talking a little bit more of that about that as the week comes. We're going to have an one outdoor service out here in the back. We think it. We're obviously we're not going to be able to have Harvest Fest this year because of everything that's going on, Uh, but we really want to see that day as an opportunity for people to bring blankets and chairs and invite their friends. We're going to do a little mailer just to these communities to see if people want to walk over. But I just want to encourage you. Circle September 20th on your calendar. Make sure.